Before we begin, there's a quick disclaimer. There's some violence and some slight adult themes in this episode. The reasons for the disclaimer are written out in the discussion post on the site, so you can read it and decide if you want your children listening to it. This week, on the Myths and Legends podcast, we're in Greek mythology, and I'll be telling the story of Prometheus, the Titan. Zeus will continue to be the absolute worst, and you'll see what not to do if your baby is born with 50 heads and 100 arms. Then, on the Creature of the Week, it's a very hungry giant caterpillar. Who may just eat your child? This is the Myths and Legends podcast, episode 28, Adamantine. This is a podcast where I tell stories from folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you might not have heard, but really should. I have a brief correction for the most recent King Arthur episodes. I should have been saying Great Britain, or Britain, instead of England the whole time. The name England actually means Land of the Angles, with the Angles being a Germanic tribe that came along with the Saxons. Guess where the term Anglo-Saxon comes from? King Arthur was, according to legend, the last king to be able to defeat the Anglo-Saxons. So, there's a glaring anachronism when using the phrase England to refer to the land Arthur rules. There's also the issue of the origin of the King Arthur stories. Some listeners from Wales have written in saying that King Arthur is a national hero in Wales, like William Wallace is in Scotland, and it's true that the earliest King Arthur legends are Welsh. The origins of the legendary and historical King Arthur are debated, and I probably shouldn't have given the impression that he was a solely English ruler, or that the nation of England even existed in the 6th century. I posted more about this on Facebook, including a slightly helpful diagram to help clarify things. Today we're going back into Greek mythology, and telling the story of Prometheus the Titan. You've probably heard his name and know of that large bird that pecks out his liver each day, but his story is intertwined with both the battle and the beginning of Greek mythology that brought Zeus to power, as well as one of the greatest epics of world literature, the Iliad. We'll also see a familiar, club-wielding, lion-cloak-wearing man. Remember that this is mythology, so some of these stories had a religious significance. There are a lot of supernatural elements, and the time period doesn't really matter at all. Okay, on with the story. The rock was still warm when the sun went down. It wouldn't grow cold until deep into the night, and by that time, Prometheus might be asleep. His side burned and itched. It was hot as it healed. Prometheus didn't know if his wound was actually hot to the touch. He had been chained to this rock long enough to forget what it felt like to be able to move his hands. Long enough that his chains no longer hurt his wrists. There was no point in straining against them. They were unbreakable. As with other nights, sleep eluded Prometheus. Jagged rocks jutted into his back and the night chill began creeping into his bones. In mere hours, the cold would take hold his shivers so intense that the chains would rattle into the night. Soon, the sun and the meager warmth of morning returned. He left his torso to unstick himself from the dry blood that plastered him to the rock, not needing to look down to know that he had healed overnight. He watched the sun rise over the mountains and waited. At what Prometheus could only assume was the same time every morning, he would hear an eagle flapping from far off in the distance. It would fly closer and closer, until it hovered above him. The Titan's hands began to sweat, even though the same ritual had happened many times before. The bird was twice his size, with a curved, razor-sharp beak. 
Without further hesitation, the eagle dove towards Prometheus, slicing open his side anew and digging for his liver. The bird wasn't overly cruel, but it also wasn't a surgeon. It would claw ruthlessly at Prometheus before cutting him with its beak. When the hole in the titan's side was wide enough, the eagle would root around inside, inflicting extreme pain. Upon finding the liver, it would pull and pull and pull until the organ finally tore free. With head feathers covered in the blood of Prometheus, it would soar away without looking back, feasting on the titan's liver all the way back to Zeus. Prometheus didn't know what hurt more, the bird attacking him, or the remainder of the day spent in agony in the hot sun, driving rain, snow, or bitter cold, depending on the season. He would fend off all of the predators that came by, but the hours always lagged before the invariably cold night fell, and he began to heal. This was his eternal curse, to have his liver eaten by Zeus's eagle every single day. Being a titan, he had no need for food or drink, which was usually a blessing. In this case, however, it only meant that Prometheus couldn't simply die. He thought about Zeus, up on Olympus, likely watching him. Prometheus hated that. Had he not helped Zeus during the war with the titans, Prometheus' own race, Zeus wouldn't be sitting on the throne at all. Instead, Zeus would be locked up in Tartarus, and the titans would be free. back up and talk about the Titanomachy. We mentioned this briefly in the first Hercules episode, but we should really go into more depth here. In the beginning, there was Uranus, which means sky, and Gaia, which means earth. Uranus was Gaia's son, but they were also a couple, and together they had many children. One of their children, of course, was Cronus, who would be Zeus's father, as well as the other Titans. But they also had other more monstrous children, like the Cyclopes, and yes, the plural of Cyclops is Cyclopes, because it just makes sense that when the Earth and sky get together, they produce creatures with a single median eye on the front of their heads. There were also the Hecatonchires, or the Hundred Handers, who had, unsurprisingly, 100 hands and 50 heads. If you're wondering how this works, well, so has everyone else throughout history. It seems like every artistic take on them is different, so I'll include a gallery in the discussion post for this episode. Zeus's grandfather, Uranus, saw the hundred handers coming out of the womb of Gaia, their mother, and was so shocked and scared of them that he shoved them right back in. As I've said before, Greek mythology has a very low bar for father of the year. Gaia obviously did not appreciate this, so she enlisted the help of Cronus, one of her children, to attack Uranus. Cronus did his job with a sickle, overthrew his father, and immediately imprisoned the Cyclopes and the Hundred Handers. He and his sister married, and get used to that, and Cronus himself became as paranoid as his father, as his sister, Rhea, neared the birth of their offspring. Worried that his own children would come to overthrow him, Cronus planned to eat each newborn upon arrival. Of note, there's a very gruesome, very famous piece of art of Saturn, which is the Roman name for Cronus, eating his children. That's on the website too, and no one is having a fun time in that picture. Zeus was the youngest of these children, and for some reason, Rhea decided to draw the line at eating the seventh child. She tricked Cronus, swaddling a rock and giving him that to eat instead. Since eating children was old hat by that point, Cronus didn't notice the rock, 
and Rhea hid the baby Zeus away, safe until he could overthrow his father and her brother. If you're sensing a self-fulfilling prophecy here, well, welcome to Greek mythology. As a quick aside, this is where some of the legendary creatures we've talked about before were born, like Geryon, the herdsman with the three bodies stuck together that Hercules slew, or Cerberus, Hades' three-headed dog. Hesiod says the dog actually had 50 heads, and though he's almost always depicted as a three-headed dog today, I've been told that that particular detail, the three heads, is actually the least consistent detail in the ancient texts. The Hydra was also born during this time, as were the Gorgons, Scylla, the Sphinx, the Chimera, and basically all the cool stuff. Over these three generations, from Gaia and Uranus down to the Olympians, the whole pantheon was born. It's not really as simple as saying the primordial beings begat the Titans, and the Titans begat the Olympians. There was a lot more going on here. To say that the family tree of Greek mythology is extremely complicated is an egregious oversimplification. I've posted multiple family trees on the website. Just don't pay attention to how many times Zeus pops up as the partner of his daughters, granddaughters, and great-granddaughters. Anyway, Zeus's mother found a way to hide him, and he grew up on an island beyond the rule of Cronus. When her prized son came of age, Rhea snuck him into Cronus's court as a cupbearer. One mixed drink later, and Cronus threw up the other six children he had eaten, all of whom had apparently grown to adulthood inside their father. Seeing as how attempted murder by ingestion was probably the most justifiable premise for war, the Olympians, those of the generation of Zeus, Hera, Hades, and so on, waged war against the Titans, or those of the generation of their parents. It was a grand and epic war of cosmic proportions, of which only one story has survived. I know. It would have made for a great episode, and it's super frustrating. Why couldn't ancient storytellers have been more considerate of 21st century podcasts? The war raged for 10 years, until Zeus remembered something. In the underworld, Cronus had locked the Cyclopes and the Hundred Handers away. Zeus freed the captives, and they joined the battle on the side of the Olympians. These extra forces helped turn the tide of battle as the Cyclopes forged thunder and lightning for Zeus to use his weapons, and the Hundred Handers, well, they were giants with 100 hands, so they could hit titans with a near-constant barrage of boulders. Zeus extended an offer of clemency to the titans. When the titans lost, Zeus would imprison all of them in Tartarus. If, however, any titans defected and joined Zeus's side, they would maintain their rank and rights. Basically, they would remain in power under Zeus. Days later, the Olympians launched their final attack, and the titans were surprised to find that the key areas of their fortifications had been weakened, and that one titan in particular had joined the other side and was now fighting against them. It was Prometheus. We aren't told exactly what Prometheus did, but his betrayal of his fellow titans was key in Zeus winning the war. Zeus's thunderbolts flashed and turned the opposing monsters to ash. The hundred-handers flung boulders, crushing the titans, and the cyclopes slashed with their swords. Soon, the Olympians had subdued the titans, and the war was over. Zeus captured his father and the other titans, leading most of them down to Tartarus. Remember, Tartarus wasn't Hades. It was much worse. It was a place of darkness and torment. Hesiod, a writer from around 700 BC, stated that an anvil falling from the heavens would take nine days to reach Earth and an additional nine days from the surface of Earth to reach Tartarus. Basically, it's very, very far and inaccessible, and we won't be seeing most of the Titans again on today's story.
one story of the creation of man in early Greek mythology. It's a hodgepodge of different accounts. Some stories say that they just sprang up from the earth spontaneously. Others that Prometheus made them out of clay, and Athena breathed life into them. There are five different ages of man, and frankly, I find it to be extremely boring. Just know that the men exist at some point, and we're going with Prometheus crafting them out of clay because it fits better with the current story, and it's the more widely accepted version from Greek myth. Prometheus didn't just craft the men, though. He loved them. In the beginning, they were little more than animals, but Prometheus cared for them and taught them things. He saw that, in their first winter, men died in droves because they didn't know how to construct a dwelling, or even how to tell if winter was coming. Patient Prometheus taught them about the stars and the seasons. He saw they needed ways to keep track of items, so he invented arithmetic for them. He gave them a language they could use, and saw that if they wanted to retain wisdom from generation to generation, then they should be able to write things down. So he invented letters. He invented medicine, art, animal husbandry, and countless other things to help the young human race. While the war raged between the Titans and the Olympians, Prometheus was down on the face of the earth, helping to raise his children. I would imagine that's why he defected. His mother, and Prometheus too, could see the future, and she told him of the immediate end of the war, including who would win. Perhaps part of the reason he chose to turn on the Titans was so that he could continue looking after humanity, and not simply leave them to the whims of the Olympians. The Olympians called a meeting regarding these men down on Earth. They wanted to hammer out the details on how the humans would perform animal sacrifices to the gods. Prometheus was invited to speak on behalf of the people. There were two main options for sacrifices, and Zeus humored Prometheus by letting him put together the presentation. It would be the last time he would underestimate the Titans' cunning. Prometheus wrapped all the meat, the good parts of the cow, in a gross-looking stomach. He then wrapped the inedible and unappealing bones in the fat of the cow, which looked to be the most appealing. Zeus quickly chose the latter, and Prometheus snickered. The Titan revealed the ruse, and now people only needed to sacrifice the bones to the gods, not the best part of the animal, as Zeus had originally intended. Though Prometheus had been invited to this gathering as an afterthought, he had outwitted all the Olympians and helped the humans he had created. Smiling with smug satisfaction, Prometheus looked at Zeus. Surely the Olympian could take a joke, recognize when he had been beaten, and lose graciously. Prometheus quickly learned the error of his ways. Zeus scowled at him, determined to have the last word. Amid the surely awkward silence of all Zeus's friends and underlings, he announced that if men wanted the best part of the animal, then they could eat it raw. Prometheus didn't understand. Zeus had promised to go by what he had chosen, and he had chosen the bones. That was that. Zeus, however, was determined to win. All around the world, the fires of men went out, one by one, until no fire remained on the face of the earth. People might have thought it was just the wind or some kind of accident, but they were dismayed when they found that they couldn't relight them, no matter what. As a quick note, in Prometheus Bound, it's said that this meeting was not to decide sacrifices, but to give everyone their new offices and ranks after the war with the Titans. All the Olympians basically just wanted to wipe the humans off the earth with a flood and start over, likely because they were the product of Prometheus, a Titan. Prometheus argued on their behalf, but the outcome of the event, whatever its stated intention, was the same. Without fire, humanity was doomed. Prometheus was troubled. As I said, he had the ability to know the future, and he could see how quickly humanity would wither and die if people were unable to make fire. 
Prometheus left that day, starting to understand Zeus a little better, and what a capricious monster he had helped to put on the throne. Prometheus knew he must act quickly. He met up with Athena at the back entrance to Olympus while everyone slept. I have more info on Athena in today's discussion post on the site, but just know that Athena was a friendly face. They moved quietly until Prometheus saw it, a burning torch. It was kept high away from the men on Mount Olympus. Prometheus produced a fennel stalk. Stuffing hot embers into the stalk, he could keep it smoldering long enough to bring it safely into the world of men and reignite the fires that Zeus had so childishly snuffed. With the fennel stalk smoking, Prometheus slipped out the back way, descending to the people of Earth, shivering in the darkness. That night, and for several nights that followed, fires reignited on Earth until they could no longer escape the notice of Zeus. In a rage on Olympus, Zeus knew who had defied him. He ordered Prometheus brought before him. Prometheus had expected to be thrown down to Tartarus, to be punished with his fellow titans. Unfortunately, Zeus was as creative as he was cruel, presumably wanting to make an example out of Prometheus to show power early on in his reign. Zeus had the titan chained with seemingly unbreakable bonds to a rock, and Zeus's eagle would come each morning and tear out his liver. That's how Prometheus would live each day. And he did. He endured this unbelievable torture day in and day out for weeks, then months, then years. Eventually, he became accustomed to the torment and the extreme isolation. That is, until the talking cow showed up. If you think Zeus is bad now, just wait until you hear how his selfishness has completely destroyed another girl's life. Right after the break. This week's episode is brought to you by Loot Crate. Loot Crate is a monthly subscription box service for epic geek and gamer items and pop culture gear. For less than $20 a month, you get 4 to 8 items that include licensed apparel, collectibles, unique one-of-a-kind items, and more. Loot Crate is more than just a box, though. It's an entire community that shares their experience and interacts with each other around the unboxing of each month's crate. And they guarantee $40 plus in value in each crate. And sometimes it's a lot more. Each month, there's a different theme and all items are curated around that theme. Previous crates have included items from things like Star Wars, Marvel, The Walking Dead, The Legend of Zelda, and many more. April's theme is Quest, with exclusive items from Labyrinth, Harry Potter, History Channel's Vikings, so Ragnar and Friends from Episodes 13 A and B, and the game Uncharted 4. And, of course, each box comes with a t-shirt and a loot pin. In the Middle Ages, some peasants in England only had one shirt and one tunic to their name, and their personal grooming consisted of an occasional fresh shirt and regular de-lousing. So with a new shirt each month, you'll not only have better hygiene than a medieval peasant, but you'll get a bunch of awesome nerdy gear too. You only have until the 19th at 9 p.m. Pacific time to subscribe and receive the quest crate. And when the cutoff happens, that's it, it's over. So go to lootcrate.com legends and enter code legends to save $3 on your new subscription today. All right, now back to the story. Io, a heifer who had once been a girl, crashed through the trees as if she were running from someone. She paused and looked at Prometheus, a man chained to a rock. Who are you? She asked Prometheus. Before a buzzing came from the trees behind her, she shrieked as a giant horsefly burst from the leaves, landed on her backside, and bit her. Io darted off, but only for a few minutes. 
she returned, winded. Io told Prometheus that she had given the gadfly the slip, the one tasked with endlessly tormenting her. She had a few minutes to talk before it found her again. Now, seriously, who are you? She asked Prometheus. Prometheus just remained silent. The very fact that she was here meant that the time course of his torment was moving forward. That, in itself, was cause for celebration. You see, Prometheus knew exactly how long his torture would be, down to the day, because, as I said, he could see the future, just like his mother. He knew he still had many, many years left to go, but this meeting with the once-in-future girl Io was a pivotal moment in his sentence. Can you even hear me? The heifer yelled. How could I not hear the child of Inachus, a girl that Zeus loved, used, and turned into a heifer to hide from Hera, the same Hera who now tortures you with a horsefly to chase you all over the face of the earth, constantly biting you. Oh, so you do hear- Wait, what? You know my father's name? And that I'm actually supposed to be a human? And wait, Hera sent the fly? They heard buzzing, and the massive fly shot, once again, from the trees. It bit Io, adding to the welts clustered on her back. She took off again, and again, returned panting without the fly. She had just a few minutes before the fly would come back. Prometheus already knew all about her. Her name was Io, and she once had been a beautiful priestess of Hera, as was the seemingly constant risk of the beautiful people of Earth. She became the focus of Zeus's lust. She would dream the same dream every night, of a shadowy figure telling her to go to the stables in Lerna, so that Zeus's eyes could ease their fierce desire. Io, guessing at this incredibly obvious dream, was smart and didn't leave, but she told her father. Trying to figure out what to do, he sent word out to oracles about this incredibly not cryptic message. Eventually, he received an equally not cryptic response. He must cast out his daughter and make her an exile. If he didn't remove her from the protection of his household, Zeus would use his thunderbolts to destroy him along with his entire family. No one of his name would survive, and he would be wiped off the earth. I, personally, cannot imagine the difficulty of that decision. You must cast your daughter out of the house to almost certain peril, or else you and literally everyone who carried your name would be killed by thunderbolts. I, whose father made the impossible choice, and cast his daughter out. I would hope that it would be through tears that he gave her some provisions and bid her to go. I imagine him sitting on the other side of the door in deep sorrow as she pounded on it, wanting to be let back in. Didn't he understand what this would mean for her? That Zeus would find her? But he didn't let her back in. It would be the death of all of them. And so Io left her father's house. And days later, Zeus did find her. I don't know exactly how it happened, but his eyes did ease their fierce desire. As I've talked about before on the podcast, Zeus was a contradiction. He was supposedly all-powerful, but he was always afraid his wife would find out about his near-constant infidelity. This time, he had covered his tracks. She wouldn't be able to see him from Olympus because he had, very subtly, covered the earth in clouds and darkness. Nothing suspicious about that. From Olympus, Hera rolled her eyes. Seriously, she went in search for her husband. She found them, but Zeus must have heard her coming. In a moment, he stopped what he was doing and transformed the girl Io into the first thing he thought of. A white heifer. Hera walked in and saw her husband standing next to a white cow. Oh, hi, honey, 
Zeus said. Look at this amazing cow I found. She looked at Zeus, looked at the very confused cow, and sighed. So you covered the earth in clouds and darkness, completely obscuring the view from Olympus so you could come and pet this heifer you found, Hera asked. Is the earth covered in clouds and darkness? Zeus asked. Hmm, I hadn't noticed. Weird. You know what? We should leave and go take a look at that. But Hera wouldn't move. This heifer, Hera said. It is beautiful. Oh, really? Zeus said. I, I hadn't noticed. Yeah, she is, Hera said. And if it's all the same to you, do you mind if I take her and add her to my herds? Zeus was quiet. He looked at Io, then to the ground. Zeus? It's just some cow, right? Hera said with a smile. You don't mind if I take this heifer, since it's completely meaningless to you, right? No. No, of course not. Take it, Zeus said, not wanting to be caught in a lie. Good, Hera said, and she walked over to Io. Io, the girl who was now a heifer, was terrified. She had no idea what was happening, but she didn't say anything, because the only thing worse than Zeus turning you into a cow was his wife leading you off with a cruel smile on her face. Hera led Io to Nemea and tethered her to an olive tree. She knew exactly who Io was and didn't want Zeus coming to her rescue, so Hera left a guardian there, a monster named Argus, who had 100 eyes all over his body. He could see in every direction and when some eyes slept, the others remained open. He watched Io in the surrounding countryside constantly. Zeus enlisted Hermes, the messenger, to go spring Io. Because when we think rescue mission, we all think small birds. Hermes turned into a woodpecker and found the girl. Hermes played his flute so well that he actually put all the monster's eyes to sleep at once and crushed Argus with a boulder. Done and done. Finally freed, Io ran off in terror. When Hera learned of this, she collected the eyes and put them on a peacock as a constant reminder of Argus's murder. She also created the horrible gadfly, basically a large horsefly, to follow Io and mercilessly bite her. It flew straight to the cowgirl, but not that type of cowgirl, and bit her. It then chased her all over the known world until she chanced upon Prometheus, chained to a rock with a dripping wound in his side. Prometheus told Io that she didn't have much time so he wouldn't speak in the riddles of the oracles, but use plain language. She would become human again, and the fly would cease biting her. He told her of her plight, how far she would have to go to leave this form, and that she must, in fact, meet Zeus again, and that she would have children with him. By Zeus, she was destined to give birth to the ancestor of the man who would come and free Prometheus, the greatest hero who would ever live, Hercules. But then Prometheus paused. He looked at Io and told her that she must not do what she's thinking. Please. You see, Prometheus knew the future, and when he informed Io that she must see Zeus again, a different fate flashed into his mind. One where Io, out of sorrow, jumped from the cliff next to her. In that one, she would obviously never turn back into a human, and so Hercules would never be born. Without Hercules to shatter the chains, Prometheus saw his imprisonment stretching on and on. He begged her, 
He knew it was hateful, but please, for him, for Prometheus, she must go through with it. If she didn't, there would be no end to his torment until Zeus was eventually toppled. Wait, what was that last part? I asked, her cow ears perking up. Oh yeah, even Zeus will fall, Prometheus said. And he could see it made Io happy. He elaborated. Unsurprisingly, his greatest foe will come from his greatest vice. In his carelessness, he will father a child that will overthrow him, like his father and grandfather did. Io, though reluctant, was happy to know that justice would finally be served on Zeus, and that she would at least leave this cow form and this constant punishment from the gadfly. She looked at Prometheus's bleeding wound. She didn't want to continue her torture, and hers was just a bite from a fly not an eagle coming by daily to tear out her liver. Io told Prometheus that she wouldn't throw herself from the cliffs. She would return to Zeus. Prometheus told her what she must do, the fearful and dangerous path she must take to find her way back to Zeus. It was then she heard the buzzing, the gadfly. It had found her again. She gave one last look to Prometheus. Though terrified, she was glad to be doing everything in her power to relieve him of his torment even if it meant returning to the hateful being that had cursed her to this form. She looked at Prometheus, said goodbye, and ran off. Prometheus's punishment continued. The years bled into decades. Each day his liver would be eaten, and each night it would regrow. Through the cold of winter and the heat of summer, he endured until, one day, he heard the eagle. He heard its wings beating from far off, and he knew that it would be there soon. It hovered above him, about to scrape with its talons, when Prometheus heard something fly from the trees. He saw an arrow strike the eagle in the neck. He saw the bird's eyes dart to the forest. Prometheus smiled. The hydro poison that coated the arrow was already taking effect. The eagle wavered on the currents of the wind for two more beats of its wings before plummeting down the face of the cliff. Prometheus heard the crash at the bottom and saw the hunter emerge from the trees. Prometheus strained his head upward to see the man, clothed in the pelt of a lion, the lion's skull pulled over his head like a helmet. He had a massive club in addition to a bow and quiver full of arrows coated in the extremely poisonous blood of the Lernian Hydra. This was Hercules. With one strike from his club, Hercules shattered the supposedly unbreakable chains that held Prometheus captive. The Titan sat up for literally the first time in decades. He stood slowly, embracing the large man. Prometheus was free. He was finally free. In some versions of Hercules' labors, this takes place during the 11th labor, when Hercules was tasked with retrieving the apples. More commonly though, this occurs during the 4th labor, after Hercules killed all the wild centaurs and even his friend by accident. In that version, Hercules had accidentally wounded a very special centaur named Chiron, tutor to a certain pivotal hero that I'll introduce at the end of this episode. Since Chiron was dying from the poison, Hercules bargained with Zeus, his father, to allow Chiron to die in place of Prometheus. In that version, they arrived before the eagle that morning and free Prometheus. Chiron took his place and somehow, Hercules was so surprised that the eagle did what it did every day by trying to eat Chiron's liver that he shot it out of the sky. This was the version I hinted at in episode 10b, but due to extensive continuity problems, I'm going with the version where Hercules needs to ask Prometheus where the apples are on his 11th labor. 
Prometheus told Hercules the way to go, and Hercules left the Titan, not quite understanding the enormous gift he had given Prometheus. Looking out from the mountain, where he had been chained for countless decades, Prometheus took a deep breath and never wanted to see that sight ever again. There was one thing he must do. When he left, Zeus was but a learner. Now Zeus was the master of everything, and he had only grown in power. He would know that something had gone wrong when the eagle didn't return that morning, and he would send Hermes to check on Prometheus. Prometheus wouldn't be able to hide from the thunder, lightning, and, let's call it justice, of Zeus. The old titan had one final chip to play, though. He left the mountaintop and never returned. He traveled for days until he came to the foot of Mount Olympus. The last time he had been there, he had stolen fire in a fennel stalk, sneaking it away. This time, however, he headed straight for the front gate. The Olympians allowed Prometheus to enter as he passed all their awkward, silent stairs. They were wondering why he didn't just run. Prometheus could have fled from Zeus and maybe made it. Now, he was presenting himself to the notoriously mercurial jerk who ruled everything. This would not end well for Prometheus. Zeus, perched on his throne, towered over Prometheus. His eagle noticeably absent, Zeus was in a bad mood. He was intrigued by Prometheus' presence, however. The Titan was many things, but he wasn't stupid. I've come to make a deal, the Titan said, breaking the silence. Zeus laughed. A deal? What could you possibly have that I would want? The name of the one who will destroy you, Prometheus replied. And he watched the smug smile fade from Zeus's face. He knew Zeus wanted it. Zeus had sent Hermes, a messenger of the Olympians, a few times over the decades to try to wrench it from him. But Prometheus hadn't given it up. Who is it? Zeus demanded. First, Prometheus interjected, clemency. He continued, I want an assurance and an oath that all is forgiven and that you will no longer seek to punish me for stealing fire and giving it to the humans. Zeus gave him a hard stare. Done. The king of Olympians swore an oath and Prometheus was satisfied. Her name is Thetis, Prometheus said. Her? Zeus asked in surprise. She won't be the one to overthrow you, Prometheus said, but your son by her will. Her son will be greater than his father, whoever he is. Zeus was shocked. He knew of Thetis, the nymph. He was attracted to Thetis. He had planned on going to see her in the way that he does. And soon, what should I do? Zeus asked, scared that he had come so close to the fate of his father and grandfather. Well, you could just stop cheating on your wife, Prometheus said. Five minutes later, when they both stopped laughing, Prometheus offered a serious option. He told Zeus to try to just get her to marry somebody else. Though, let's face it, that hadn't really ever stopped Zeus in the past. Prometheus explained that there was a man named Pelus, and that his son with Thetis would grow up to be one of the greatest heroes of all time. But he certainly wouldn't rival Zeus for power. I don't know if Prometheus felt a pang of guilt, using the same information that he had used to get Io to go back to Zeus, to get Zeus to forgive him. Prometheus knew that the girl had had several children with Zeus, and at this point, generations later, she was long dead. Later that day, Prometheus walked from Olympus, out into the world of men. It was a world he had helped foster, and 
thanks to him giving up years of his life and countless livers to an eagle, it had survived. Zeus went to work trying to get Thetis, a water nymph, to marry the human named Pelus. After a long and difficult courtship, they finally married on Mount Olympus. The couple would go on to have seven children, but oddly enough, only one would survive infancy. It was a boy, and he would, indeed, be greater than his father. He is still known today as the famous Greek hero who fought in the Trojan War. His name was Achilles. I personally love the story of Prometheus. I've always found it poignant that he risked giving up everything to forever change a world that he might never see again. I thought about him chained up there, likely being able to see fires off in the distance, of people that were alive because of him, because of his sacrifice. It's a really good story, and that was before I even knew the extent to which he was believed to have helped and nurtured early man. Next week, there'll be two stories from the Grimm brothers, the famous German folklore collectors that we, surprisingly, haven't talked about yet. One of the stories will be the original German story of Rapunzel. As with many of the Grimm stories, it's bizarre, interesting, and, for a children's tale, surprisingly violent. Hey, so the podcast is turning one at the end of this month, on April 29th, the day I hit publish on that first Uvain story. I want to do a Q&A episode and look back with some elaborations and alternate readings of the stories I've gotten from listeners. If you have a question, feel free to send it via email, a comment on the site, Facebook, Twitter, or even cooler, by voice message on the site. I'll go with the most frequently asked questions as well as the ones I find particularly interesting. They can be about myths and legends, of course, or really anything else, like podcasting, movies, Batman, anything. It'll be a bonus episode, and it'll come out Friday, April 29th, 2016. I want to say thanks to ADJ1987, J, Jeremy Osgood, Nadine, Acobetta, Slagey, Impossibility at Work, Tiggerbone, Sixinator, Mark Hetry, V Saltzman 800, DMCC16, Clothi, Rohan, Summer Plum, Rackdad3187, Safe Burrito, J Fontalera, Describe, Metal Mind, Neon Kia, Champagner, Juwan23, Smashbro6894, Ibalator, Charles Darwin, Lizzie Bethanori, Andres, Sosu Petals, Heather E. Ortega, Joey RZ, Nay532, Rosie Emlin, Vivian Osmos, Joshua Wold, Tanya Mays, List Lishy, and Roy MP3 for becoming new members on the site in March of 2016. And those are all screen names. With the new Stripe setup, I don't have access to your actual names, which is great for privacy. It doesn't let me know what they are, so I just have to read your usernames. If you'd like a shout-out on the air, send me your name, and I'd be happy to do it. And also, this was only about half of the people from last month because I didn't want to take up several minutes thanking the new members. So next week, we'll finish it up. And great segue, there's a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of a creepy full-head fish mask, you'll get extra episodes and source pack ebooks that won't make people think you're Admiral Akbar about to lead an assault against the second Death Star. If you're interested, check out support.mythpodcast.com. The creature this week is the Gooseberry Wife. She's a monster from the Isle of Wight, right off the coast of Great Britain, and she keeps children from plucking berries from a gooseberry bush. We somehow know that she is a she, even though she only appears in the form of a very large, hairy caterpillar. 
She doesn't smoke hookah, but she is a very hungry caterpillar. I can't think of a third reference for a children's book caterpillar reference hat trick, but really, she will eat your child for messing with your berries. And that's it. She just protects this very specific type of berry bush, so the best way to avoid her is to simply not steal gooseberries. There are a few theories I found about a large caterpillar. One is that sometimes hairy caterpillars travel in lines, so that could be an explanation. This interpretation wouldn't have her being large in a giant sense, just really long. Another theory that's been floated around is that she could just be confused for a viper. There's a hairy bush viper from Central Africa that just looks hairy, it doesn't actually have hair, but I can't really see those getting to an island off the coast of Great Britain. So, moral of the story, if you're an adult, save a life, and don't plant gooseberry bushes. Children, don't steal berries, or if you absolutely must steal berries, take them from literally any other type of bush that's not guarded by a supernatural giant caterpillar that will eat you. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and both the Creature of the Week and the new ad music are by Steve Colmes. Links to other music I used in the show notes, and there's a discussion post about this episode on the site. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.